And so for those who are staying in the service here with us, as well as those who might be listening by other means, whether that's online or elsewhere, we invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter number 5. I trust you have your Bible handy. Matthew chapter number 5, and we continue our studies together. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message, continuing our thoughts on being disciples in community in Matthew chapter and number 5. I draw your attention, for sake of time, down to verse number 48. We've read this verse three Sundays in a row now, and gone back and look at what, looked at what Jesus has said leading up to this verse. This is a hard verse to swallow if you don't have the context of the Scriptures. In Matthew chapter number 5, and verse number 48, would you read this out loud with me together? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Perfect there, again, has the idea of maturity. Not sinless perfection, but mature. Can we but be mature like our Father in heaven is mature? Think about the best image that you have of a Father. I know that's difficult for some because that father image was marred. But there are others who can give testimony of great earthly fathers. Even those great earthly fathers, if they know how to give good gifts to their children, they don't compare to our Father which is in heaven. Jesus taught that. Think about that perfect image of who the Father is. Think about the maturity that that Father has. And then apply that to these words. Jesus is saying, be ye mature as my disciples. Jesus is helping his disciples learn how to handle things that they will encounter as they follow him. The Beatitudes began with those blessed statements. Blessed are, and Brother Jeff referred to some of those, I want to be more meek. I want to be able to live for God the way that I should. I want to be able to be mature. You can't do that in your own strength. As you heard his testimony, it takes Something outside. It takes the power of God. Now I say something outside. I mean something supernatural. Because really that something supernatural should be inside. Right? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ has, has helped His disciples understand what He's going to talk with them about in this so-called Sermon on the Mount. He's introduced some ideas of where they can find blessing in their life if they'll listen to Him. Every ear is upon him intently. Every eye is watching his every movement as he sits on that hillside and teaches his disciples. He begins to warn them. His message was not one of fluff. It was filled with things that they would need. He informed them that if they chose and decided to follow him and live up to the things that he was putting before them, they could expect tribulation. They could expect trouble. They could expect that when they stand up for righteousness, other people will be offended because of their stand on the truth of God. And he was preparing them for what they would face from their own families, from the government, from those that are around them in life. Every sphere they would face persecution. And Jesus reminded them, rejoice when that happens. Not that you're going through the persecution. Okay, Nobody rejoices over hard times. But Jesus reminded them, you are following the footsteps of those that have lived for God for the ages. 
And this is an indication that you're doing something right for God because other people uh, are upset in, in a good way. Okay, not in a bad way. We don't go around just upsetting people and overturning people's apple carts and calling ourselves Christians. Please don't do that because you're not living up to Jesus' words. You understand what I mean? They're going to face tribulation. He reminds them in the midst of that tribulation that they are to be salt, not having lost their savor because that kind of salt is good for nothing. They are to be lights in this world, letting their light so shine before men that they may see their good works and glorify their Father which is in heaven. That is the idea that when you see that term glorify God throughout the book of Revelation in particular, it means that they're going to have a conversion experience. They're going to get right with God because of your Life in following Jesus. And your light is shining. Your words matter. He then goes into expound some things that had taken over the Jewish people in his day. They had become so mechanical and so ritual in their observances and, and crossing every T and dotting every I, so to speak, making sure, the Pharisees in particular, making sure they kept everything that the scribes said inherently was in the law of Moses that God never put in the law of Moses. And they were living, the Pharisees were, a very legalistic life. Far, Their heart far away from God. They looked very good on the outside, but their heart was a million miles away from where it needed to be in that personal relationship and walk with God that he so desired. So he begins by addressing the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart as the preacher said in days gone by, right? The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. He starts there because God is concerned about the inside. He works from the inside out, but yet it's easier for us with our hands to work from the outside in, and we get it all wrong. And we wonder why it's broken. Well, because it's in our own strength. But when it comes, that transformation from the inside out, the song that we sang, Living for Jesus, in the hymn book, the verse that was connected to that was Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, and acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's the way. Transformation from the inside out by the renewing of the mind. So Jesus is confronting some renewal that needs to happen within their mind because they've got the wrong thinking. And Jesus does not want His disciples to wind up down the same road as the Pharisees. But here's my question, and I wonder, how many of His disciples have done exactly that over the course of the past few thousand years, couple of thousand years since Jesus gave these teachings. How many have departed and they've gotten stuck in autopilot? They've gone back to uh, doing just what comes natural and it is, well, we've got to do this and get the, all this done. And so, And we lose the life. We lose it. Jesus said, if you're going to see heaven, your righteousness has to be better than that. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And here, I mean, this is going to set a bar that everyone listening to him is going to say, oh, that leaves me out. You would probably say the same thing with me in that day, wouldn't you? You look at someone who is a Pharisee and, 
And they just, I mean, if you want your kids to grow up and be like somebody, you want them to follow this path. I mean, they just have everything down. They know how to pray and, and, and give these you know, prayers in public, and they know how to do all these things. They know the law. They know the scriptures. And yet, that's not what Jesus was talking about. He says, accept your righteousness, exceed theirs. The root of that cause, when you study the New Testament, is self-righteousness. We're the biggest liars to ourselves we can ever be sometimes. We can really convince ourselves, can we not? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. And God just keeps working on us and honing us. And as we get to the light, He shows us something else. And we go, I'm really not okay. If we're humble enough to do that. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. So Jesus is going to have six statements that He makes. You've heard that it was said by them the whole time, thou shalt or thou shalt not. He gives six examples from the law, which is right from their Bible. He goes right to their Bible, which is our Bible today, by the way. He goes to that and he says, here's where you got it wrong. They said external. God says internal. Spirit behind it. It's not enough just to, to, to keep your hands from murdering someone. If you hate them in your heart in an inordinate way, then you have violated that before God's eyes already, and you are guilty before Him. There will be judgment. There will be consequence. Same thing with lust. It's not enough that you refrain yourself from the physical act of adultery and fornication. He says if you have that in your heart, you've already sinned, and God already sees that. It's the heart. Same thing with divorce. And this is the area where we pick up our time today. Jesus is in the middle of helping His disciples who are following Him. Remember, these are those that came to Him. They came to Him, and they sat at His feet, and they are listening to Him. And He tells those that have come to Him, He's helping them how to deal with their passions, with anger and with adultery in particular. Isn't that powerful? Now, this is the shortest of all the six. If you look in your Bible... At uh, verse number 31 and 32, you'll see what encapsulates his comments about divorce. Now, I do not intend this to be a, a biblical defense or refutation of divorce. I've dealt with that topic multiple times in other sermons, and Jesus didn't spend a lot of time there today, so I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time there, but if you have questions you let me know. I don't have it all figured out, but I can show you some things that I've learned along the way. And I, if you want to know where I stand on divorce, I'm not going to keep that from you. I'll share that with you. But that's not the time or place to do this. We're looking at Jesus' words, not the pastor's opinions about divorce and remarriage. Okay? What Jesus said here goes back to the law. It goes back to Deuteronomy 24. What was the stipulation in Deuteronomy 24? The stipulation was that if a man put away his wife... And then she goes and marries another. The original husband was forbidden by the Mosaic law to take her to be his wife again. That was the scenario. That was the situation. Now, why Jesus is referencing that, I believe here, is because of the little clause in Deuteronomy 24 that talks about let him give her a bill of divorcement. Let him give her a writing of divorcement. I, th I believe Jesus is dealing with this because, keep it in context, okay? Anger 
without a cause is murder in God's eyes. We've got that nailed down. Adultery is sin in God's eyes. Adultery is fornication. And so if you look in lust, or and he goes into the context about if, uh, if you cause someone else to be in adultery, he's going to deal with that here. He's dealing with adultery. The heart of the matter. The writing of divorcement. It's interesting to me in that Deuteronomy 24 passage, who was given permission to actually remarry? It was the, uh, the guilty party, if you will. Remember, it was the man that found some uncleanness in his wife and put her away. The one who was hurt the most, the one who was the dirty one in that content, and I'm using that loosely, okay, the one who was found contaminated in whatever that was, that he gave her that bill of divorce. She was the one that God said, you can go and remarry. But if you divorce the second one, you can't go back to the first one. That's done. That, that was the law of Moses. That's Deuteronomy 24. The writing. By the time Jesus is teaching this, you need to understand, uh, school of Hillel, and uh, was, uh, I'm going to mis- mispronounce the name. There's another Shema school or something like that. Uh, school of, uh, I'll have to get it in my notes. There were multiple teachings on divorce. The Mishnah, which was the scribes, you know, working with the law and interpreting all of this stuff, and this is what people would live by. All those rules and regulations about how far to walk on the Sabbath and how far to do this and how you need to wash your hands and how you need to comb your hair and what you need to say and what you don't need to say, how you need to act and all this. That's the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, it was very loose on divorce. If I could phrase it for you today, uh, I would probably put it like this. Well, she burned her biscuits and she's out. Forget her. I'm going to go find somebody who can make real biscuits. Now that's from Georgia, okay? I'll take you back to Georgia there for a little while. I don't... Okay, what Jesus is saying is it doesn't matter if she burned the biscuits and you're married to her. And in God's eyes, even if you give her a little piece of paper, guess what? Because she burned your biscuits and you don't like her, God's really going to burn your biscuits. You'll get that in a minute. There will be judgment. Because in God's eyes, that's not, that's not acceptable. Is it? We have in Colorado a no contest divorce, right? And so that's basically Mishnah. You don't like the way somebody combs their hair. You don't have to have a reason. All you've got to have is a piece of paper from the state. So this applies to us today, doesn't it? The sacred and solemn vows of marriage should never be entered into lightly. And I say this every time that I perform a wedding. I understand there are extenuating circumstances, and so did Jesus. Because in Matthew chapter number 5, he gives an exception clause. If you're going to come to a position on divorce and remarriage, you have to deal with this exception clause. If you isolate Matthew and only take Luke and only take Mark, you're not getting the whole scripture. My personal take on it is Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, Luke is writing to the Roman audience, and uh, Luke is writing to Greeks, and Mark is writing to Romans. Divorce means different things in different cultures, even today. We understand that. And so here, Jesus is dealing with this with Jewish, with a Jewish audience, 
And he gives this clause, except it be for fornication. Last time I told you, hold on to something, and I'm going to jog your memory here. Jesus said, if a brother, if a man hate his brother, and these were the next words. Let me read it so I don't mis, misread it. You have heard that it was said, verse 21, by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, but whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus says, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother, the next phrase, is without a cause. That's an exception clause, just like you have on the passage dealing with marriage and divorce with adultery. So when you diagram it and you lay the passage out, you see there's parallels all throughout this. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture. It is just marvelous. So what was the cause? And we can understand what Jesus is saying. Basically, it's not enough if you just don't like the way she cooks or something to give her a bill of divorcement. You're still married in God's eyes in that respect. The only thing that we might talk about is if there was clearly fornication, if there was adultery involved, except it be for fornication, that's the clause. Jesus gives it. Others also go to other passages in Exodus, and they will look at abandonment as a legitimate cause for divorce. This is my summary statement on it. God will never put on you something that He would never bear Himself. How can I, as a counselor, sit down across a desk from someone and ask them and tell them the Bible commands you to go back to an abusive situation? The Bible commands you to do this even though they're sleeping around on you. You've got to. Jesus didn't say that, and neither will I. Now, I'm very careful here because Jesus' words are strong. They are strong. He says in Matthew 19, Whatsoever God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. That's the heart of God. Two become one, and you can't make two without damage anymore. There's a breaking that happens. Two become one. In intellect, emotion, and will, they're locked together when they're in holy matrimony. And anything outside of the marriage bounds is adultery, according to Hebrews 13. We understand that. So here, Jesus gives some teachings and help His disciples. He's helped them in the people's court. If you're angry with your brother without a cause, when you go stand before Judge Judy, don't worry. The Lord will help you if you'll humble yourself. You can get right with them before you ever get to her. Deal with it quickly while you're in the way with them. And you don't have to appear on national TV. That's not how Jesus said it, but you get what I'm saying. Adultery, he's dealt with that. Hey, you've got to control your passions. And where is it more passionate than in a marriage relationship? Those that have been married in a length of time know there's a lot of grace that you've got to have when you're married. Yep, there's a lot of grace that has to be given. There's a lot of grace that has to be received. Forgiveness almost every waking breath. But you know what? Love is a decision. It's not a feeling. And when we stand before an altar, before God, we decide, I will love that person. I will give myself to them till death do us part. And we're going to hold to that. Jesus is going to deal with keeping your word here soon. 
which is on the horizon in Matthew chapter number 5. You see, we're dealing with passions because we can become very passionate in dealing with these, mar- with these uh, issues of marriage. You don't believe that, just go talk to some divorce lawyers here in the Denver area and they'll tell you exactly how passionate husbands and wives can be when they're breaking it off. Some of it gets really passionately nasty. And a lot of times, this is what breaks my heart, so many times the children are the ones that suffer the most. They are. And Jesus talks sternly about offending these little ones. They were better that a millstone be hung about your neck and you be drowned in the depths of the sea than for you to offend one of these little ones in any way. God watches over His little children and He takes care of them. And so as we follow Jesus, we need to know how to act in the people's court. We need to know how to act and conduct ourselves in the private court. We need to know how to act as disciples in the divorce court. And now that He's dealt with our passions... He's quite clear that we can't be right with God until we're right with another, one another. And we we are advocates for Jesus Christ. Those three segments from the law help us understand how to deal with our passions. In these next three, Jesus is going to help us understand how to deal with our promises. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to be a person of your word. You need to say what you mean and mean what you say. And when you say you're going to do something for God, it matters to God. It matters to Jesus. You need to keep your word. When someone comes and asks you for something, you need to know how to uphold your promise to them. Remember, James says, if you don't give them that, which is needful from the body, but but you tell them to part, be warmed and filled, and you don't help them, You're not keeping your promise to God to follow Him. You're breaking your word. And then he closes with the sixth one, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. These are the next three on how the disciple not only deals with his passions, but how does the disciple deal with his promises? How do we work from the inside? Do you see the pattern again? God works from the inside out. We deal with it internally. And it affects how we operate externally. We need to be an advocate for Christ in the court of honor. This is in verses 33 to 37. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said of old time, by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. I think, I don't know who gave this illustration. It was probably J. Vernon McGee. I'll just give it to him. I'm not sure who to give it to, so I'll just give it to, to the late Dr. Dr. McGee. He, he was talking about this, and one thing that he said drove him crazy was when people say, I'll pray for you. It's not the fact that they're saying they'll pray for someone. He says nine times out of ten, it usually works out that they don't. I'll pray for you. Sounds really good. Sounds super spiritual. But did you? Now, as a pastor, I have to deal with this. And so one way that I combat that, because I know my own weakness. You know my weakness, too. I can't remember half of anything. And my brain is its out there sometimes. If I tell someone I'm going to pray for them, I don't want to forget that. 
Because I really do mean it when I say it, right? I mean, we wouldn't tell him if we didn't mean it. But, I mean, if I stand before God one day, he's going to bring that up. Every idle word I've said, is going to, I'm going to have to answer for it. Hey, you remember when you were talking with so-and-so and you told him you were going to pray for them? Fast forward. And I'm just going to have to go. Yeah. That's not how we ought to follow Jesus. So, what I do to help me, because I, I need to deal with things at the moment, if, if I'm going to pray for someone, I pray for them right there. You wonder, some of you might wonder why I do that. You've seen me do that. I've stopped you and said, you know, let's just pray right now. This is part of why I do that. Because I want to honor my words. I want to be a disciple that means what he says and says what he means. If I tell you I'm going to pray for you, I don't want to just tell you I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray with you if you'll let me. And then we'll do that. Now that's just one application, okay? For swearing thyself, be careful what you promise. Make sure you follow through with everything you have. I can tell you about a time where um, when my wife and I, we bought our, our house together. So our first house we ever bought together was back in 2008. It's part of the reason why we're still in Colorado, because you sign your line, your name on a line of a document that's entitled Mortgage. And it's synonymous with mortician and the mortuary and the mortgage, okay? So you're in this thing for life if you're going to honor your word. And the original one was a 30-year loan. Three decades out of my life. I took that pen. And they were, I, I did not want to sign that. That pen was not going to come to that paper until I knew exactly what I was signing. I mean, the realtors were sweating bullets saying, are you ever going to get this thing done? We've got other people to go talk to and I'm... I'm going to sign it when I get to it. I'm going to read every bit of this. That was a big deal. If I didn't have a stronger conviction about this, that was January 2008. Anybody remember what happened economically in 2008? Well, economically, this assistant pastor at the time lost his, his means of income. And I still had the ministry, but I wasn't making any money. I got off the phone book. I did the best next thing that I could do. I started calling people and asking them if they needed any help. I show up to the job site. I'm doing physical manual labor, construction, painting, and the crew got to know me a little bit, and they stopped dead in their tracks one day, and they asked me this. They said, let me get this straight. You have a master's degree, and you're painting for construction painting? I said, here's how that works out, okay? It's real simple. Here's the math. I'm taking my time. I'm turning my time into money. So that I can then take my money and feed my family and pay my bills. And he's like, got it. That's what you do. That's what you do. And you know that because you're hard workers. You're here. And you bend over backwards and you do what it takes. If I didn't have the conviction that I did, I mean, we reached out for help. It's not like we didn't. But everyone told us, when you're three months behind and you haven't paid your mortgage for three months... Call us. Okay. So just go back on my word. <laughs> I'm going to sign this mortgage. Hmm. I'm sorry. Call it pride if you want, but it's not pride because I have biblical basis for it. I'm not worried about my reputation. It's not my reputation that's at stake. It's his. It's his. And so I did what needed to be done. And God gave me the grace and gave me the strength to do it or I wouldn't be here today. 
I'm not telling you that so that you can look at me and say, oh, what a great guy he is, what a great husband, what a great brother. Fooly. Ask, ask my wife. She'll tell you the truth. I'm telling you that so that you see it matters. When you say you're going to do something, you ought to do that within all your power to do it. And it takes some sacrifice sometimes. Don't forswear yourself if you're not ready to go the extra mile. That comes into what he's going to say later. I say unto you, swear not at all, Jesus says. It's best if you just don't even take out that mortgage. Hey, wouldn't that be great if you just saved up the money and went and bought that house for cash? Good luck here in Colorado, by the way. Maybe you can. That'd be great. You could help the church out too, by the way, if you have that. And some, okay, that's on the side. Nor, he says, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. That is a direct reference to the Psalms. The great king. It's the city of the great king. He's our God. And Jesus is kind of in a roundabout way of referring to himself there. I like how he does that. That's really neat to me when I read the scriptures. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black, but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. Anything above that, he says, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. To swear by God's throne. Go read Psalm 2, verse number 4. Psalm 11, verse number 4. Isaiah 66, in verse number 1. And you'll find out that to swear by heaven, that's God's very throne. That is His prerogative, not ours. That belongs to Him and Him alone. You have no business putting something up on that throne that God didn't put there. To swear by the earth. Well, that too goes back to God, does it not? Because He created it. He's our Creator. The whole earth is the Lord's. It's, it's God's right to use the earth as His own footstool. It's not our right to use earth to bolster our own petty claims, one writer put it. To swear. Uh, that's facing toward. comes from a Greek word, ice. And it's a preposition. Toward Jerusalem. Um, that's to pretend that you can tell God what to do. No, Jerusalem is His. You're not going to tell God to do anything. He's working His plan and His program. He is sovereign. And so that city, Psalm 48, verse number 2, that city is not yours to control. So how are you going to swear by Jerusalem? Now this is for His audience in that day, remember but it makes sense to us. So here is a great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments in which, uh, some of which, you know, you've got God involved in this compartment, and then in others, you don't have God involved. No, you can't compartmentalize your life in that manner and still follow Jesus. There cannot be one kind of language in church and another kind of in the shipyard or the factory or the office, one writer said. There cannot be one kind of standard of conduct in the church and another kind in the business world. You get what they're saying, right? Who you are is who you are. What you see is what you get. And I, I have from day one striven to be who God made me to be. Behind the sacred desk, as well as when I'm not behind it. 
this is who I am. And I'm not going to be somebody that I'm not because that's going to hurt the cause of Jesus. Will it not? How many have seen that very thing in churches? Not only from the preachers. Maybe it's the preacher's wives. Maybe it's the missionary that came through. Maybe it's the evangelist that travels. Maybe it's the Christian school teacher. Maybe it's just the person sitting in the pew that says they're following Jesus. Top down. It applies to us all. And if we're one way here, and then we're one way outside these doors, that's hypocrisy. And so as we come in here, you know, one of the, one of the ways that I've had to help people understand this, because they, they haven't understood it, it can manifest itself even in something as simple as handshaking. You know, we shake hands during the service. Well, okay, I'll do it. I just got to slap a smile on my face and pretend like nothing's wrong. No, you don't. Please don't do that. If you have a burden, share that. You don't have to do it during handshaking time because it's a brief time where we just greet one another and we can help each other along. But if you really have something you're carrying, you need to sit down with someone and pray about that and get serious with God about that. Don't just come in and pretend like everything's okay when it's really not. This is what the body of Christ is for. This is our church family. We help each other. We bear one another's burdens and we so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, I can't talk of so-and-so because you, well, you understand where we're going with that. And our church is great, by the way. Um, there's been a few, few times in the past as a pastor that I've had to counsel with others. And mind you, I'm very clear to set them straight very quickly about our church family when they have the, the wrong idea about handshaking time. And they think, oh, you know, they're so friendly to me here, but then they don't talk to me when I get outside the church. Well, I won't digress there. Let's stay on topic. Okay. We ought to be who we are in front of God and in front of others. God doesn't need to be invited into certain departments of our life. Does he? Does he need an invitation to be there? Jesus said to the church at La- to the church to the church at Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. What was he doing outside? <laughs> Jesus outside the church? Yeah. And you know what? He's outside of a lot of churches today too, by the way. And God forbid that he ever be outside of this one. Because he's the head. We follow him. The church is his bride. So we don't invite him into these departments, keep him out of other areas of our life. No, God is everywhere. He's he's all through everything we do, every activity of our life. He's with us everywhere we go as we sing. He hears not only the words which are spoken in His name, He hears all the words that we say. And there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into a transaction. It's not transactionary, our walk with Him. So we will regard as disciples all promises as sacred. If we remember that all promises, big and small, really truly are made presence of God. Now, I don't expect you to go out here and sign your name to a mortgage unless you've already done that. And I'll pray for you, you pray for me. And we'll make it through the next 15, 10, 30 years, however long it takes us to get through that. But honor your word. Be people of your word. Deal with your passion. In the people's court, in the private court, in divorce court. And also, you need to deal with your promises in the court of honor. 